The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. We are live. It is Monday, November 20th, 5 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, which is uh, midnight uh, uh, Finland time for those who are joining us from Finland. You are watching Dog Shirt TV, the only TV station in the world that um, is hosted by a guy in a hammock. <laughs> dog shirt. I am here today with the estimable Ruth Ben Giat, the author of the um, uh, most unfortunately popular book, Strong Men. I I honestly wish we lived in a society, Ruth, where your book had like eight readers. Um, but uh, congratulations, the world sucks enough that your book has been you know, quite <laughs> a success. Um, so first of all, I want to ask you how you got into the subject of writing about the worst people in the world. <laughs> yes, because uh, dwelling in the heads of these uh, people is not, uh, I don't recommend it. Um, and I, I did a lot of yoga, um, and, and nature walks while I wrote the book because, uh, it, it's, uh, it's, they really are, uh, the most bleak, uh, individuals, uh, that you can find. Um, so I, I, I got into this subject in a kind of improbable way because I grew up, uh, in Southern California on a beach near Malibu, um, in a town that was a refuge uh, in the 30s for a lot of people from Nazism, uh, like famous people and, and the towns around it. Um, and this was Pacific Palisades. Um, so Thomas Mann and Arnold Schoenberg and uh, just all kinds of people like that. And and so their, their ghosts were kind of around. Um, when you go to the library's book sale, there were like, a lot of first edition, you know, uh, German novels from the 20s and 30s. Uh, their kids and grandkids were still there. Arnold Schoenberg's um, son was a teacher at my high school. So I just started thinking, you Did know, he, I would talk to he taught math, mathematics, um, which I was terrible at. But I, I would talk to him and continued to talking to him when I was at uh, UCLA and um, and I ended up doing a senior thesis at UCLA on Otto Klemperer, uh, the conductor. And so the, my interest was, you know, what is it, what kind of regime, you know, forces these people to leave and resettle so far from home? And so that's how I got interested in Nazism. Um, I, I didn't grow up in a family. My, my mother's from Scotland. She's Christian. My dad's from the Middle East. Uh, Sephardic Jewish. So I didn't grow up with family uh, stories about the Holocaust or Nazis or anything like that. It was through this other way I got in. And then I, I ended up uh, specializing in fascist Italy 
because it lasted twice as long and uh, there wasn't as much work uh, done on it. And I, I'm interested always in what makes people uh, become corrupt, become lawless, how do regimes get people to collaborate and, you know, what is the destructive outcome for a society? Um, so I decided to, to specialize in Italy. And then, uh, you know, when Trump came on the scene, it all was very familiar and relevant and I ended up writing Strongman as a warning to Americans that this could happen at home as well. So I want to start by asking you what a strongman is, as there's there's many forms of dictators. There are people who you focus on in the book, like Berlusconi and Trump, who aren't exactly dictators. Yeah. There are people, there are dictators, including genocidal dictators of the left, who you announce in the beginning of the book, you're you're really not going to treat. Um, and so what is the what is the fundamental definition that you're working with as a strong man of the type that that the book explores? So first of all, because I, I do get irritated emails from people who uh, don't find uh, Castro or um, Chavez in the book and and think it's because uh, I'm biased in some way. Yeah, note that I'm not irritated at all. I'm just trying to be nice. Exactly. No, I'm just, this is the context. Um, I, you know, I, uh, what I didn't find uh, on, on the market, so to speak, which I thought was most relevant to our situation in America, was a history of what, you know, of fascism, and then what happens after fascism uh, dies, flames out uh, on the right. And so I decided to do a history of right wing, um, you know, authoritarians. So I have three sections, the, the fascist years, right wing military coups, and I focus on Chile, and then what I call the new authoritarians. So and they include uh, former communists like Orban, and especially Putin, who's a protagonist to then become, you know, close to fascists. And Trump is in the book. Um, I decided not to, you know, had I also put uh, Stalin and everybody else on the left, that would have been a different book. Um, and I, that wasn't the book that I wanted to write. So that's it. So Strongman is um, my formulation. It's, it's not my word. It's a word that's very common. But I'm using it uh, to denote uh, leaders who use this authoritarian playbook. And I isolate these tools of propaganda um, a greater na- bringing the, the nation to greatness, um, so the myth of national greatness, a corruption, very important, violence, and machismo. So the strongmen, the people I decided to focus on were people who use their masculinity um, or machismo allied with corruption and violence uh, as you know as part of their playbook. And it's the first book to elevate masculinity this kind of toxic blend uh, to a tool of rule and to show that it's not, you know, we can laugh when Putin has his shirt off or whatever, but it's deadly serious. And so I really, uh, you know, I analyze it in, in that framework. So that's, so that's how I consider uh, the strong men. Yeah. Just, uh, I have long taken Putin's uh, displays of 
toxic masculinity seriously, but in a kind of joking fashion in 2015, uh, beating Elon to the punch by eight years, by the way, I challenged Putin in public to a fight. Um, And um, uh, relatively shortly thereafter was warned by the FBI that my that I needed to batten down my electronic hatches because I was being targeted by a a foreign cybersecurity bad actor, uh, which they did not name. Um, He takes his masculinity extremely seriously. Uh, Mm -hmm. And um, so your conception of the strong man, it seems to me, includes, but not all of it necessarily. For example, um, uh, uh, it includes somebody like Franco, but, you know, not somebody, for example, like Salazar in Portugal, who was not a kind of obsessed, as far as I know, anyway, obsessively masculinist or, um, you know, it, it sort of front rows the the freak quality of some of these people. Um, you know, Duterte, yes, but less so Ferdinand Marcos. Is that, is that fair? Um, I mean, that's not how I chose, uh, you know, the, didn't the, the freak, the freakiest ones is not how I, that was not part of my criteria. Um, and Franco, for example, he, he, uh, is not really in the masculinity chapter because he ha- he was very, uh, he had a very high squeaky voice. He, he was not charismatic at all. Um, and he he's kind of styled himself as the grandfather eventually, uh, like a kindly grandfather. Um, and of course, you know, obliterated any mention of his uh, mass violence. And he's gotten a pass in history. So I explain, I explain that. But, you know, one of the goals in the book, I thought it was time to look back over 100 years of authoritarianism. And so the three sections are showing how it changed. It changes. And, you know, so we still, have, of course, have one-party states, especially in communist uh, countries. But today, things work differently. And you can have a Berlusconi or a Trump who don't, don't need a one-party state. They control, you know, in Berlusconi's case, he controlled the media. And he used his networks. Um, he, he owned all the private networks in, in, in Italy when he was prime minister. And he used his networks to kind of dispense 24-7 uh, drip drip of extreme misogyny um, and and constantly joked in demeaning ways as head of state uh, used official occasions to demean women um, and the UN by the end of his last term in office the UN actually issued the, the office of discrimination against uh, women and gender issued an official report warning that you know Italy was like a dangerous place for women <laughs> um, because domestic violence was up and all kinds of gender-based crimes were up. So Berlusconi was, uh, a, people used to call him a clown, and he liked to be a clown. So did Bolsonaro, so is Trump. Trump's very amusing. But behind it, it, it the, the, that's, that's a form of distraction as well. They distract from their crimes uh, and their corruption uh, using this kind of machismo. 
either signaling to other men uh, in, in ways that men find positive and women or by being brutes. Um, and then they, you know, that is a connection into the, the kind of whatever their forms of, of violence, uh, whatever form they take. And so in Berlusconi's case, no, he's not a dictator. But his right-hand man was, uh, uh, who, who was a senator, uh, was convicted of mafia association. The, the man closest to him, Marcello Dell'Utri, was convicted of mafia association and kept on being a senator in uh, Berlusconi's party uh, for eight years. So there, there are these freaks are, uh, use their freakishness uh, very savvily to um, send signals of intimidation and, uh, you know, that it's better to be silent about things. So I want to come back to the masculinity theme because I think it's a, it's a genuine innovation of the book. And I think it's a really interesting theme, but uh, let's stay for a minute on the dictatorship authoritarian theme. It seems to me that the the critics of the book who've said, wait a minute, Trump Trump isn't a dictator. Berlusconi is a legitimately elected guy multiple times. She's grouping them in with Hitler and and uh and Mussolini and and you know people who were genuinely genocidal. I take your point to be more about the personality type and the style of leadership. Uh, yes. Than about the quality of, you know, how murderous or not murderous. There are certain, the book sort of identifies certain playbook elements and certain, um, and certain, I, mean, I don't think all these people as, aspire to one degree or another, to a considerable degree, to be dictators, to be absolute. There's a narcissism about all of them. There's a uh, an egomaniacal quality. Um, so when you identify, like when somebody says to you, hey, how do you group Trump and Berlusconi who say obnoxious things, who have obnoxious um, uh, connections, who are corrupt and who are misogynists, sure, and probably, you know, probably rapists, but um, they're you know, they're not genocidal. Uh, what's your answer to that? Yeah, because it's not it's not grouping them together in the sense that the book says very clearly it's it's a book about it's a history and it's a history of how authoritarianism has evolved. And uh, although there are uh, lots of murderous people uh, today, like Putin, who has managed to have, you know, a de facto dictatorship and 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 by the way, uh, the most important thing about Putin is a kleptocracy. Every time we say the word Putin, we should say kleptocracy. And and that level of control and kind of um, possession of the economy, exploitation for um, personal profit, et cetera, was only done before him by Mobutu and Gaddafi. Um, and, and there are some others. So nobody's saying uh, in the book that, that Trump is like Hitler, is, is another Hitler because the personality types, as you said, are, are similar. The outcomes are vastly different. And so the idea is to show in the book uh, what stays the same and what changes. Um, so 
certain things stay the same, like personality cults or the personality profile of these men. It's, it's, it's shockingly similar. Um, the way that, of course, uh, media is used, the way that um, the degree of violence, uh, for example, Erdogan engages uh, not in mass killing, but in mass detention. That's what tr uh, Trumpistan 2.0 wants to do, as they just announced, you know, huge deportations, millions of people penned up. Erdogan also uses beatings, including at the uses, Brookings, in my home institution. Yes, he does. He, no, it's not. I'm not saying he doesn't use violence. He uses, and I in the book I have a whole section how he actually engages in extrajudicial kidnapping. Uh, in 18 countries, has had people kidnapped and they're brought home and they're tortured. Um, so he uses plenty of violence, but he's not genocidal. Um, uh, on this, of course, uh, on the scale of a, a Hitler or Mussolini who uh, it, it engaged in, in genocide in, in several continents. Um, so, or Stalin, who, again, he's not in the book, but so that's not the aim of the book. And those who say it's a comparison, it's an evolution. And, and that's, the, that's, that's what I was aiming to do. So we see how, in fact, how violence changes over a century. Um, and how propaganda and how corruption change over a century. And so that's what I was doing in the book rather than just uh, sticking them in in some, in some fashion. And, and those who were complaining about it were also, some of them were political scientists who, who wanted to say the book had no rigor. But there is a concept I use, which comes from political science, which is a personalist rule. And that's, that was a criteria for selecting who's in the book. Personalist rulers are, uh, again, they can be uh, dictators. They could be people like uh, like a, an uh, Orban today or Berlusconi, who basically, they are authoritarians. Um, the degree of control they have differs, right? Um, some, some are not able or don't want to have a one-party state. But in all cases, they try to turn the mechanisms of government to uh accommodate their finance, their personal financial and legal needs. So for example, Berlusconi was able to get the laws changed. So if he was accused of bribery, uh, the parliament passed a law where bribery was no longer an offense publishable by jail, punishable, sorry, by jail. So you customize the legal system to meet your needs. Another example is uh, uh, Democratic with a small d politicians, they don't run for office if they are facing charges or under investigation. It's very messy, right? There's opposition research, there's journalists probing, but strong men are not ordinary politicians. They are compelled to run for office while, while under investigation so they can get back, they can get to power or get back to power and shut everything down. They always need to feel safe. And so that's an example of something that, you know, Putin ran for office uh, while under investigation, Berlusconi, Trump, you know, Berlusconi and Trump several times, uh, and Netanyahu uh, most, most recently. And so there are these patterns of behavior that are very destructive, that are all about their own self-preservation. Um, that you that have different outcomes at different moments in history, but the impulse of um, saving yourself above all else stays the same. Yeah, it's interesting because it's it's very easy to imagine certain types of rulers who have some of the elements that you describe, but not others. For example, 
you mentioned Netanyahu, who clearly has the uh, corruption and the staying in power by way of avoiding criminal accountability, um, and who has the sort of, um, you know, the sort of right-wing populist politics, but who doesn't have a particular personality cult. And in fact, he's uh, he doesn't do much to uh, stop criticism of him, which is rampant all over the political society. And he's kind of, uh, you know, he's not especially uh, macho as, uh, in fact, he kind of slipstreams off of the posthumist machismo of his brother. So he's a kind of a weird, uh, and and similarly, I like not to compare him to Netanyahu, but, you know, the book has this incredible set of descriptions of the sexual predations of a whole bunch yeah. of these guys from Gaddafi. I didn't know anything about the Gaddafi stuff um, to, um, you know, to Trump, which is, of course, a well-known story and Berlusconi, which is well. And against these people, you know, Hitler seems quite comparatively normal from a sexual point of view. He's maybe abstinent. He's made maybe kind of repulsed by women, but he's not going around raping people. Um, and so I think one of the interesting things about the sort of evolutionary and comparative portrait that you draw is how many, like, each of these guys has some core of these six or seven elements, but lacks one or two, right? Some are not dictators, yeah. some are not rapists, some are not uh, especially corrupt as these things go. Um, how many of them do you need before you qualify as a strongman? Um, I mean, it, it, this there are people who uh, use the they use propaganda. They are all they're all corrupt. Um, it's very hard to find somebody who's authoritarian because the authoritarianism is about getting away with crime, about having impunity. And all of them, we may not hear about their corruption. We don't hear, you know, Putin exists also to make Orban look good. So we don't hear as much about Orban's corruption and his that of his son-in-law and his family, but it's there. Um, his son-in-law was being investigated by the EU uh, and, you know, Orban was able to stop it, uh, stop the investigation from, from proceeding in Hungary. So um, they're all using these playbooks. It's just in, in different forms. Right. Um, so now for those who don't are not familiar with this, the the um, the I wanted to put the stuff in there about the um, it's about the sexual kind of uh, addictions and their consequences of leaders like Mussolini and Gaddafi to show how personalist rule operates. It's as though Jeffrey Epstein were the head of state. And uh, as you know, these kinds of, uh, you know, sexual rings, you need recruiters, you need people to you know find women, fly them out, house them, uh, have parties and events. Uh, it's a big operation. And so if you're a dictator, you are able to use the instruments of government to fuel your private addiction. So Mussolini um, 
he used his secret police who would uh, uh, scout for women at rallies, who would invite them to come to uh, Palazzo Venezia, his headquarters. And then by all accounts, uh, he would rape them or be with them and send them on their way. And then they were surveyed uh, by secret police. And if they were pregnant, uh, you know, forced to have abortions. So this was the system. Gaddafi uh, went and, one and step And before further. you go on from that, I mean, yeah. the numbers that you s- describe yes. in the book with Muslim, like this is a four time a day thing yes. for a 20 year rule. This is, it's a, it's, it's a kind of Genghis Khan level mass rape situation. Yeah. And, and why is this, why is this there? It's not because it's sensationalist. It's because uh, this was going on even when, when Italy was, Italy was at war from 1935 to 1945, Ethiopia, Spanish civil war, then invaded Albania. They were constantly at war. Um, and Mussolini is engaging in these activities for several hours a day and then spent several other hours looking for his own name in the newspapers. So one of the uh, one of the outcomes is that these guys who who masquerade as competent authoritarians, oh, they get things done. The trains run on time. They are completely dysfunctional. And their whole lives are organized around their private needs and the whole state uh, can become the state bureaucracy, the secret police can be organized around their private enrichment. That's what Putin does with kleptocracy. He raids Gazprom. No, no agency has escaped Putin's, you know, predation, it's called as in predator. So there, so authoritarianism is about putting controls on some people and allowing others, such as Leader and his circle, uh, to have freedom to plunder, plunder the workforce, plunder the environment, plunder the economy, and plunder bodies. So that's why I decided uh, to tell these stories. And it was not fun, especially as a female scholar, to write about this. But it's not, it's not known. Um, and it is very insightful into how authoritarianism actually operates and, it's, yeah, and, and how a, dysfunctional it is. Without getting pruriently engaged in the subject, there's a similar account of Gaddafi that is, you know, I had known he had a group of traveling nurses with him uh, and that there was something super icky about it. But I was really unaware of the magnitude of, uh, and he was in power much longer, of course, than Mussolini. 42 years. Can yeah, you imagine? Power like, the year I was born. Um, yeah. And, he, you know, I was 41 in 2011 when he was finally killed. He had been in power literally my entire life. Yeah. And, and, um, I interviewed people uh, for for this book, and uh, one of the most moving stories was a family. It's the reason Gaddafi's in the book because he's actually he's this, he's a very far left revolutionary type. So you think, why is he in your book about right wingers? He's in there in 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 one way. He's the he's the person who shows that these things are. Uh, are not restricted to right versus left. He's also in there because his life was very influenced by Mussolini um, because Italy controlled Libya um, and then also by Berlusconi. 
Uh, and so he had, that's why he's in there. But I have a story of uh, a, fa- a Libyan family who um, they, had to, the, they had to go into exile under Mussolini when they occupied Libya. And this, let's say, grandfather was a big resistor. And so the family grows up in exile. And when Gaddafi uh, fell and the civil war broke out and the Arab Spring came there, this, this man, uh, who's an international lawyer, he came back to Libya and he brought his son to fight against Gaddafi. Um, and so there are all these incredible stories of, of exile. And this goes back to my childhood, right? Uh, being interested in, in, in what makes people have to go into exile. And so a sub-theme of the book uh, is, is about the communities of exiles that form. Um, and again, this is, this is, we don't hear enough about this human cost of, um, of authoritarianism, all the, all the ravages it has on people's lives. So one of the things that I was intrigued by, I mean, you always hear, uh, with, for example, Mao and a number of other, uh, left authoritarians or totalitarians that they also had effectively a a uh you know a, a sort of rape culture in their in their domestic situation or whatever you want to call it um how intrinsically connected is this in your judgment to the to the ideological complexion of these regimes and how much of it is just about if you put a, a if you put a charismatic egomaniacal male in charge of a country one thing he's going to do is you know demand sexual access to whoever he wants uh, how how much of it is in you know connected to the substance of what these guys were saying so it's of interest. Uh, I mean, it can be the the it can be of interest in leader studies or masculinity studies. But for me, it was of interest if it becomes systemic. Again, Mussolini and Gaddafi are interesting because they use the secret police and of their of their instead of you know doing secret police work, they had. In fact, Gaddafi actually has had a whole department called the Department of Protocol, of course, devoted to getting him his sex partners and keeping them prison imprisoned uh, and all the stuff. So when it becomes systemic, that's, that's, that's when it's interesting. Now, and it's very much though, it's also, it's also consequential because it goes with the misogyny that, um, that, that sparks policies that affect millions and millions of women's lives right? Taking reproduction, reproductive rights away. Um, Trump, for example, uh, now he, so what, what these guys do, even if, if they're in 21st century, uh, both Berlusconi and, and Trump, you could say that sex addictions of some poor, and these are really about power addictions. It's not about the sex, it's about the power and controlling bodies. So they both went into businesses that provided them with what I call a pipeline of bodies. So Berlusconi was interested in beauty pageants, just like Trump. Trump had Miss Universe. Berlusconi owned TV networks, so he had all the starlets and actresses. Um, 
Trump had uh, Trump models. So you have a stream of women to exploit. Now, when they get to power, what do they do? They pass laws that make women more vulnerable. So it's a little known fact that's in my book, Trump partly decriminalized domestic violence uh, while he was president. Um, meaning he, he changed the definition of domestic violence so that um, all of the harassments, economic harassment, verbal, emotional abuse, everything short of physical harassment no longer counted as uh, domestic violence. And that leaves women more vulnerable, more easy to control. And of course, we only have to look now at his enablers and allies, the GOP, uh, going around taking away abortion rights, uh, harming women in myriad ways. Um, and also Trump appointed many men, this is in my book too, it's continued in the GOP, defending sexual harassers, defending abusers, appointing men like Bannon and others who, who were known abusers. So you, you elevate a certain type of man, the brute, to positions of power to send a message it, to the culture that these are the values that you hold dear. So, and when you joke, like Berlusconi did and Bolsonaro, you joke about rape, Duterte, a lot of them, Putin, they joke about rape. They're sending messages to, to, to people in their countries to say, we're gonna look light upon this. And, and so thus the predator again. Um, so that's why these things are in my book. And it's interesting you're asking me about them because this was the part of the book I actually expected uh, it, from various quarters, including feminist critics, to be asked about when it first came out. And in a way, nobody wanted to touch it. So I've, I've spoken very little about it. You're one of the first people who's going in depth about this subject with me. And the book's been out for several years. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I... I... There is a lot in this book that was familiar to me. I mean, there's a lot that wasn't. I'm not, my knowledge of Chilean history is, uh, and Libyan history is not nearly as good as my knowledge of Italian and German and Spanish history. But, um, and my knowledge of the Trump administration is unfortunately for my sins in <laughs> life, really, really strong. Um, I was aware that some of these people were pathological and and you know really r real rapists i had no idea the scope and scale of either yeah. the mussolini or the Gaddafi. uh i mean it amounts to a kind of crime of mass violence if you if you amortize it over the number of years that it was happening yes and in, in the Qaddafi case, uh, also because it's a Muslim majority society, it, it, and it, it's it's very difficult to talk about those things, um, and so it remains, uh, you know, very little known because the victims don't have support to come forth, um, and it, and then then it was dangerous to come forth. Um, so, as it can be in many circumstances, um, you don't have to have a forty-two-year-old old dictatorship. Um, so that's also why I was, when I wrote it, I, I often had the photographs of, uh, of men and women, you know, victims of these dictatorships out to honor them and expose the way that 
again, the, the, the sexism and the machismo go together with violence. They go together with corruption. Um, and so that's the playbook. And again, the outcomes are different in different countries, but the, the impulse to control everything and plunder, uh, that is ingrained in this kind of personality. As well as one more point, uh, this personalist rulers, they don't recognize psychologically almost, they don't recognize boundaries between public and private. Everything is theirs. So when Trump, uh, when the documents uh, scandal um, you know, crime uh, were, was discovered and we heard that Trump had classified documents in his bathroom at Mar-a-Lago, I was like, check, of course. And he's like, they're mine. Everything right. is theirs. They, they just don't, they, they, just as they don't want any restrictions on their power, they don't want to be told that things are not theirs because everything and everyone is an asset to, uh, to bargain with, to have leverage, to blackmail with. That's truly, this is part of the bleakness. That's how they see the world. Everything is in function of what, how can it benefit them? Every piece of paper, every body, uh, every title, everything. So one of the things that you, you've just described in the bleakness of it, uh, the bleakness is a two-sided coin because, I, you know, I've really been struck during the Trump era by just how relentlessly unappealing he is to me and yet how relentlessly appealing he is to somewhere between 40 and 45 percent of the population. Uh, and I was, I was struck by how well that point scales, you know, across the group of people that you're describing. Mm -hmm. They're all relentlessly unappealing. And that's not just because you're describing them in a particularly hostile or uh, unfriendly light. They're repulsive human beings. And that's, mm -hmm cross ideological from Gaddafi to Mobutu to, you know, Ch uh, uh, Allende, uh, not Allende, uh, Pinochet, Pinochet to, mm -hmm. uh, to uh, Trump to Berlusconi. It doesn't matter what, like, and I, I guess I'm, this is the, the sort of ultimate question, but why do people find this <laughs> attractive? Um and particularly, why do women find this attractive? Um, there's, it's so relentlessly bleak and unappealing. And that's before you get to the other side of the coin, which is the apparent self-loathing of, of and loneliness of the individuals in question. But mm -hmm. let's bracket that for a minute. Wh why do these, why does this work? Well, they they are superb uh, propagandists and communicators. They are superb manipulators. Um, they are people with an amazing sense of timing, um, uh, rhetorical timing, also historical timing. And so the, the times when these guys appeal are when a society has had a lot of change um, that some people celebrate as progress. Could be workers' rights, like after World War One and gender, you know, uh, progress and gender equity, racial emancipation, all of these things. And others, as we know, see this as the end of, quote, civilization. 
And in Euro-American context, it's, you know, white Christian males of dominated civilization. So that's when these people step up. And in Trump's case, or in Berlusconi's case, they are marketers, they're entertainers. Mussolini was a journalist. Mobutu was a journalist. Um, you know, they, they, have, they have a sense of, of, of how to reach people. And they make themselves what the culture needs at that moment. And they'll say one thing to one group in the morning and the opposite to another group at night. And they, are, they have no moral code. They're total opportunists. They're transactional. And that's how they, from, from Mussolini and Berlusconi to Trump, they get these constituencies that, shall we say, they're eclectic. They've got like gangsters and housewives and people have nothing in common, but they adulate them because they are trying to be all things to all people. So the last point is that on the communication, they are able to use the latest technologies of communication and media, whatever they are. So Mussolini, it was newsreels, Hitler, the radio, um, Modi made himself into a hologram, Berlusconi used satellite TV, Trump used Twitter, whatever the latest thing is that allows them to have a direct communications channel with the people, unmediated. Hitler so also the used the airplane. He was the first politician yes. in the word world to barnstorm by airplane. That's right. That's right. And uh, in fact, Trump, uh, when he when he went to Waco, uh, interesting choice to kick off his campaign, he actually uh, there were many. Um, I wrote about this for my Substack, Lucid. There were many uh, similarities with Triumph for the Will. He came down from the skies in the airplane. He parked the airplane. He had pageantry. Uh, anyway, I digress. Um, but they they know how to put a sp on a spectacle. They know how to communicate, and they communicate in original ways that make people feel elevated. So that's why they get these, and they and they require loyalty. So they get these very intense bonds with people. And throughout history, once these bonds are formed, it's really hard to break them. No matter what the guy does or says, there the people are still there for him. And they feel protective of them. And the last thing I'll say is they're not just the brutes, the defenders of the nation, the strong men. They're also the victims. And for women and men, but for women, this is a way in because they're persecuted by the deep state or, you know what, the, the witch hunt thing. Guess who used witch hunt? This literal, this, that term, Mussolini, Erdogan, Orban sometimes, uh, Berlusconi all the time, and Trump. So these are not original slogans. They're all using them. And so they are persecuted. They're victims. And so there's lots of quotes of people go to Trump rallies and interview Trump followers. And women will say, he's been through so much. We have to help him. We have to be there for him. So that victimhood thing is extremely convincing. So that's the charm and the seduction of these guys there the heroes and they're the victims. Um, it's really, and that's, it's a very compelling, uh, complex masculinity that they present. Right. That mass, that there's a, there's always the threat that your hero with the bare chest, who's holding a rock over his head is not going to prevail because the ants that are 
pecking at him. Ants don't peck, but, you know, the little beasts that are pecking at him are so numerous and they're so evil that they might prevail over him despite his perfection. And and so, but let me ask you, is there, you've just listed a bunch of things about these people that aren't original. Mm-hmm. Um and of course, the most famous thing about Trump that isn't original is America first, um, which is, you know, not just was horrible and corrupt and fascist the first time, too. Do they have elements of originality? I mean, was I mean, Mussolini is probably a bad example of this because he's he's the first of them. He's he kind of created the paradigm. but. Do each of them bring something new to the table, or are they just um are they just a rehash of the same five tired themes warmed over for their particular constituents? No, they they each they each do. They recycle things. This is often unconsciously because they have because they have similar personalities. They think in similar ways. They're not like Trump isn't reading a book. Now, Hitler studied Mussolini intensely and Mussolini just doesn't get uh, he gets a short shrift because everybody focuses on Hitler. But Mussolini uh, was a he wasn't a mentor to Hitler because actually he thought Hitler was such a loser that Hitler was bombarding him with requests for um, autographed photos throughout the whole 20s. And Mussolini was like, who is this person? You know, but um, Hitler even had a bust of Mussolini on his desk uh, and other Nazis were ridiculing him because he was so in love with Mussolini. And he and more seriously, he learned from him. Um, He learned a lot from his successes uh, and tried to emulate them. So there are there are imitations. And Trump watches very carefully. He also had a very deep imitation of Stalin, though he never acknowledged it. That yes, he did. Fundamental relationship between the party and the state is kind of lifted directly from the Stalinist iteration of Leninism and kind of merged with Mussolini, um, which all of which is quite well developed by 1933. Yeah. And then these are, you know, like per Hannah Arendt and other critics, you know, the Hitler and the Stalin, these were the two totalitarian, uh, you know, nations of their time because of the relation of the party and the state. So, yes, the borrowings cross uh, ideological boundaries. So today, you know, Putin's a kind of a, a right wing fascist type, and then he's very close with Xi and and Trump is adulating both of them, mentioning both of them constantly as models for leadership. So they watch each other. The main thing they watch is what each other is getting away with <laughs> to go back to their venal uh, plunderer character. So when Mussolini didn't really pay much price for invading Ethiopia, which was a League of Nations member, this really uh, encouraged Hitler to speed up his timeline. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, she is watching what Putin is doing. And and they all again, they all. They all monitor each other. They pay a special attention to uh, how they end up. And so there's actually an interesting chain of, of paranoia and anxiety where uh, when Saddam Hussein uh, met a bad end, 
um, very publicly. Um, Gaddafi got like very worried that he was next because he was, you know, uh, listed as a terrorist. And so he he did this like cosmetic liberalization um, uh, of his state to try and avoid, you know, get, being invaded. And then he met a terrible end recorded on cell phone, the same as Saddam getting, he was in a hole of the ground and he, he was taken and, out. And, and really similar to Mussolini too. Yes, similar. Well, Hitler and Mussolini died a day apart and Hitler watched what happened to Mussolini who was you know, shot and then strung up. And he added to his testament that he did not want to be his body to become a spectacle. So it should be cremated. So he was very influenced by what happened, the, the horror of and the shame of what happened to Mussolini. So they watch each other in that way. But just to end my cycle, so then then Gaddafi ends, you know, in, in an awful way uh, publicly. Who's watching that? Putin. Putin, uh, his some of his advisors were uh, were in, interviewed by Frontline said that he watched obsessively this video of Gaddafi. And so then he has his own crackdown uh, in 2012. Um, and so he, he's worried that he's going to be next. So that's, there's a kind of chain of watching what happens to others and doing everything you can to avoid being next. Yeah. One of the things though, that none of them ends up in is prison. The closest any of them gets is, uh, Berlusconi, I suppose, who has a has a conviction, but you know, what's sex with a minor after all? Um, and um, and Allende, who has many, I keep saying Allende when I mean Pinochet, um, who has many charges against him that are unresolved when he dies. Um, yeah. Uh, what do you make of the prosecution of Trump as a as a possible resolution to it? It's genuinely different from any of the other outcomes in your book. Um, it is, uh, you know, a parallel is Berlusconi, who was uh, pros- he he had. By the way, Trump's got four indictments. Berlusconi had over. 20. Um, and he was forced to resign in 2011. And then he was, um, he, he had so many corruption trials, but he was convicted 2013. So after he left office, the difference is he was banned from politics for five years. And by the way, it wasn't just sex with a minor, it was fraud, bribery, wiretapping, and something else I'm not remembering. But the key to, um, the key to kind of ending their personality cults and their allure and their viability in politics is to ban them from politics, which isn't going to happen in America, but it happened in Brazil where they had a coup and a dictatorship and they know the stakes. So when Berlusconi was banned from politics at the beginning, right after his, his um, party almost won again, it lost by less than 1% to the left, the center left. But then with him out of the picture, it kind of shriveled and it it now it gets like seven or eight percent of the vote. And ironically, Same. the far right in Italy, which is, of course, ascendant 
is ascendant in a weirdly non-personality cult-like way. Yeah. Georgia Maloney is a pretty vanilla far-right politician. She's not like a Marine Le Pen kind of figure. Well, I I think she is. She's like a hardcore neo-fascist. She's just playing nice on Ukraine. So I see her differently. But you're right that it stopped the um, cycle of the, the strongman. And indeed, the person who wanted to be the next strongman was Matteo Salvini, total thug. And all the parties, because they have a multi-party system, all the other parties got together, even parties that don't like each other, to stop him in 2019. So this banning from politics was really important. And then now we have uh, Bolsonaro has been banned till 2030. So this is what you need to do because these people are, not only once they get into the political system, they change everything. Look look how Trump has changed the, the party and the GOP systemically has done so much, and now he might come back. Um, they often come back. So the only way is to ban them for a length of time, and during that time, their personality cults shrivel and or deflate is a good word that, that people use. Uh, and then they be, by the time their ban is over, the, the winds have shifted usually. So, but to go back to your answer, prosecution is, some people say, oh, we shouldn't do it because it's going to cause unrest. It's going to cause violence. Well, we already had January 6th. So um, prosecution in my mind is always important to show that democracy is working, that no one is above the law. Trump started his political career saying I could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and I wouldn't lose any followers. So to show that, that, you know, again, no one is above the law, everybody's accountable, that the rule of law is in force, that threats are not working, uh, because that's, that's the idea is that, you know, you would threaten so much, you would kill in, in other circumstances, judges have been, you know, killed around the world, prosecutors, so that nobody would even try to prosecute you out of fear. So I, I think it's everything that's happening is absolutely, uh, you know, warranted and also very important from a democracy protection standpoint. Um, I want to come back to the two-sided coin of the attractiveness of these people. One of the striking things about your portrayal of them is how unhappy they all seem. Um, and, you know, I... I I have never really focused on that, how much it must have sucked to be Mobutu. (laughs) Uh, Not as much as it sucked to be under Mobutu's boot, but like he didn't (laughs) seem like he was enjoying himself very much. And, you know, um, I've read the Hitler table talk, the the, uh, monologues that he gave during the war to the high command in the evenings. And he he's a there these are very, very strange people, which couldn't, I guess shouldn't surprise anybody. But I'm I'm curious what just what your psychoanalysis is of the like why the power can never be enough. Why 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 is you know, why is, um, you know, once you've overthrown and killed Salvador Allende and 
you've, you know, wiped out 10 or 15,000 lefties and you've established yourself as the dictator, the unrivaled dictator of the country. Why don't you like drink some wine and feel good about yourself and like, you know, run a country? They all seem really pathological. Yeah, but that's not how they roll because the, the same qualities that allowed them to get into those positions um, and, and get away with it, um, which is, uh, again, total absence of moral code, um, you know, toleration for any level of corruption, total self-interest to an extent that most people can't even envision, um, sadism, all these things we've mentioned are actually liabilities when they have had power because they become to a man, they become very paranoid that somebody is going to take this away from them, or they know they've made so many enemies and, and there's lots of assassination attempts. You know, we don't hear too much about Putin's, but Hitler had like over a dozen Gaddafi. Uh, I, I used the CIA, CIA, you know, archives, uh, just the digitized ones. And, I don't know, it was like 20 assassination attempts. Now he was there for a very long time, but uh, at least 20 or maybe 20 in one year. It was just astonishing. So there's reason that they are paranoid, but the paranoia far outstrips that. And so nobody is ever loyal enough for them. And that's why they keep shaking up their governments, hiring and firing people. And so they're actually miserable inside because they, they they can never have they can never be at peace with themselves Um, and they need constant adulation and constant submission from all around them at a level that most of humanity doesn't, doesn't have that need to that degree. So they're very special tribe of people. That's why it's interesting. You can see how they recognize each other. Um, Like they become, you know, like Modi and Putin are strolling hand in hand, you know, uh, there or or Trump invites Orban uh, to Washington when he was 2019, and he says it's like we're twins. Well, yeah, it's a similar personality, and that's why they act in similar ways, even though the outcome is, is very different. Trump wasn't sending people like Mobutu to jail or to be killed. He, but he was hiring and firing them. He was, you know, getting the IRS to hassle them. He was threatening their their families, you know, doing, and that's what Berlusconi would do too, uh, sticking mafia threats on people, I mean, all kinds of things. So outcomes are different, impulses are the same. Yeah, so uh, there is one big exception on the, you know, this ends badly for them, uh, which is Franco. Yeah. Who lives to a ripe old age, dies you know, having named his successor, which most of these people don't really have a much of a succession plan. He's got a succession plan. It doesn't work out quite the way he thinks it will. Um, What's his secret? Is it just that he was less pathological and able to see the big picture? Was he lucky? Uh, I mean, he's clearly the one, if you're going to be a strong yeah, won, man, you want to be he, Franco, right? He 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 won the dictator lottery because he died of natural causes in his own country. Um, so 
he, the reason he uh, was, and he was there 36 years, it's like approaching Qaddafi at proportions. So he, his first piece of luck or in a way was that he didn't enter World War II uh, with the fascists. And now Franco was super whitewashed uh, by the, by the U S he was, he became a cold war client. And in turn, he had like, you know, PR firms working overtime for him, presenting him as a soft authoritarian. He also had uh, Conrad Hilton and the guy who wrote the travel books, Fodor, Fodor. They also were collaborating, saying that Spain is so calm and peaceful. There's no trash in the streets. There's no strikes. You can come and have a nice vacation here. So there was a huge investment during the Cold War in Franco and the narrative got rewritten. So nobody was thinking about the hundreds of thousands of people, you know, he imprisoned or the mass graves. So there was that going on. But his first thing was that he, he didn't go into World War II. And the new narrative said, well, he didn't join Hitler and Mussolini because he wasn't really a fascist. Well, the actual hist- historical record is that the reason, the reason he didn't go in is that he was asking for too much and Hitler didn't want to give him all the territory. Like, cause he, Franco was obsessed with having more in Morocco and around there, North Africa this is, and the Spanish empire. And Hitler found him impossible to deal with. And so said to Mussolini, I'd rather go to the dentist and have my tooth drilled than deal ever again with Franco. And so, so Franco's, Franco was too intransigent for Hitler so he, he did not go into World War II. So that thus, he did not meet the end of his fellow fascists. And he went on this other path. Um, and, and then he got whitewashed and praised. And he, he, he became, truly had... Le- he became one yeah. of a number of useful right-wing dictators during yes. the Cold War. But he had legions of PR people. Uh, working. The only person who surpassed him for that was Pinochet, where you had, you know, because the U.S. was in on on the coup. So so the the book I wrote the book also to debunk these narratives about these people, because uh, they're, you know, the traces of Franco are still are still with us today. People are still uh, having the, the, the mass graves exhumed and bodies exhumed so they can know what happened to their loved ones. Um, and this is an ongoing trauma, uh, and uh, and the violence of Franco has been way way understated. So I wanted to bring to bring that to light. Um, and you know, sure there wasn't any crime, uh, petty crime, but there was lots of uh, major crimes by his secret police and and his thugs. And that's and not what we hear huge, about. There was a huge stifling of the development of Spain as a country that didn't happen for 35 years um, and really only started uh, once Franco was dead and, and they had elections. We are going to, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, it's okay. Uh, I was going to mention something about Opus Dei. Uh, Please do. Well, so when you do a book like this, there's unexpected through lines that you find. Um, and I knew about Opus Dei uh, as, you know, being very important managers of liberalization and the economy in Franco Spain. And then Opus Dei 
surfaces majorly important in uh, Chile, which became under Pinochet uh, a laboratory of neoliberalism, right? Because of the Chicago uh, boys and that kind of, we know that story. Then we find though, Opus Dei um, uh, in Berlusconi's Italy. And the same man I mentioned who was the right hand of the mafia for Berlusconi was also his right hand for Opus Dei. <laughs> and so to my surprise, here I am focusing on, I'm writing it while Trump's, Trump, Trumpistan 1.0 is going on. In Trump's inner circle, numerous people adjacent or members of Opus Dei William Barr, Larry Kudrow, uh, Pat Cipollone, uh, Roger Severino, who's now in Trump 2025. So that's an interesting through line as well. And what do you take from that? Well, that in the, in the United States, uh, we, we hear a, a lot about the success Trump has had uh, co-opting, allying with evangelicals, with Protestants. But we have not heard uh, enough, um, although now Leonard Leo is getting more uh, you know, press, we haven't heard enough about far-right Catholics who are, are extremely powerful. And you know, perhaps few of them are actually Opus Dei members or adjacent, but that's quite notable that Trump had so many in his cabinet um, and that Opus Dei, uh, as we see from the short history that I've sketched, has a whole long history of supporting authoritarianism. Um, and we have to pay more attention to that. So what is your big takeaway as we sit in this period in which uh, the, the, the strong man is out of power in the United States, but threatening to come back? Argentina yesterday elected somebody who doesn't not fit into the um uh the framework although how much he does will we, i guess we'll learn um as you think about what the big i mean obviously the big international lessons is don't let these people anywhere near power but it not sure it quite answers the question how do you do that um do you have a how lesson well, the the book was supposed to be uh, a warning for uh, you know M Americans to realize that we're not um, so distant from uh, that tradition, and it can develop anywhere. Because the history of these things, alas, is that every population who uh, who who faced a rising authoritarianism has been unprepared. So the Germans, you know, Germany and the 20s and before Hitler came was not only the most advanced, one of the most advanced in the world for science, technology, engineering, medicine, graphic design, arts, um, center of gay life, everything. And so people couldn't quite, it didn't quite compute that, uh, that this crazy, you know, ranter uh, who's on the fringe would actually appeal to people. Um, and so it has been repeatedly. And one of the saddest things is, even when there's a coup where there isn't that buildup, you don't have Duterte and, and a Trump saying, I'm going to be violent. I'm going to shoot people. I'm going to throw people out of helicopters. So that even when you don't have those warnings, the Christian Democrats who were like the conservatives in Chile after the coup, 
they actually thought that uh, Pinochet was going to uh, restore order and then give power back to them. <laughs> that's how that's how in denial or uh, obtuse they were. And so there's this recurring obtuse of, obtuseness um, or unwillingness to see. And we're doing we're in the center of this now in America, where people uh, Trump is telling the Trumpers are saying very clearly what they're going to do. And he's using, you know, fascist language, calling people vermin. And yet some people are still thinking that this is just a uh, bluster. And, and that's just not how it works. That's not true. One last question, and then we'll let you go. Has there ever been a strong woman? Uh, I, at the conclusion of the book, I... And will it be it's... a victory for feminism when there is? Um, I say that it's inevitable that we will have uh, a female authoritarian leading a country because, uh, you know, this cohort of leaders, some of them are aging out. And uh, I was thinking uh, at the time I wrote it of Le Pen in France, who comes closer and closer with each election. Right. And but of course, the first we now have a new crop. We have Katalin Novak, who's the president of Hungary who um, proved her worth by being uh, Orban's minister of family. And most of all, we have Georgia Meloni, who was uh, her, her spiritual, heir, a kind of, um, what's the word? Her spiritual advisor, in a sense, has been always Mussolini. She was a hardcore neo-fascist. I think she remains one. And also Berlusconi. She was a minister for the first time under Berlusconi. So this is her lineage. And she may take uh, a pro, uh, pro-Western pro stance on Ukraine, but this is somebody who's so extreme that she, her version of the great replacement theory is way to the right of Tucker Carlson. She thinks there's a plot, you know, uh, by Soros, the EU, all these places. This is up to like 2020, she was saying these things, to, you know, flood Italy with non-whites and extinguish the white population, and she has this philosophy she calls ethnic substitution, which evokes ethnic cleansing. So she is not a moderate. She wears pastels, she uses filters, she's very capable with her image, but she's uh, extremely, uh, she's a fascist. She truly yeah, is. Just, just to be clear, I never meant to suggest she was a moderate. I meant to suggest yeah, that I she know. wasn't building a personality cult. Um, um, yeah, it works. To, it, it, right. She doesn't perhaps want a personality cult. Um, but what I what I say in the book is that they won't strip their shirts off, but they're going to be just as racist and corrupt uh, and, and use propaganda the way that the men did as well. Well, we have that to look forward to. <laughs> uh, uh, Ruth Ben-Ghiat, uh, uh, it's been a pleasure meeting you and talking with you and hearing from you. And thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure.